Okay. Okay. I think we're recording, hopefully. Yes, I will. Could you try to get this going? Going. Yeah. It's going. Okay. Welcome everybody to a four-part series on Eicha Rabbah. I'm very glad to be learning with you, and though each class will stand alone, so if you can't uh, make it to all of them, that's okay. We will be trying to work through um, certain issues that sit at the center of the book. Uh, which I will describe soon. So we would love to have you, if you can, for all four, uh, four classes. Rebbe Hayadoresh, this is not in your handout, but it's for dramatic effect. Rebbe Hayadoresh, Bila Hashem Esrim Va'arba Apin. Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda Nasi, the famous, well-known patriarch, the, the compiler of the Mishnah, the beginning of the third century, used to expound one verse in Eicha from the second chapter, Bila Hashem, really just those words, God will swallow up in 24 different ways. He didn't just explain the simple meaning, the pshat, but he actually tried to look at it from 24 different angles. Something incredible, but if you're used to Midrash, something that is assumed. It's assumed that not only are there 24 ways, but there are 70 ways of looking at the Torah and perhaps even more. And Rebbe had 24 ways of looking at this specific verse in Eicha. Impressive, but not as impressive as Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan hayadarish ashitin api. Rabbi Yochanan would expound this verse, these words, from 60 angles. So we seem to have almost a reverse hierarchy, something that we would not expect. Rebbe, who was the most famous Tana, he compiled the Mishnah, had 24 ways of looking at this verse in Eicha. Well, Rabbi Yochanan, a generation later, and not simply a generation later, but a member of a different epoch, he was an Amora as opposed to a Tana, had 60 ways of looking at this verse. And this mathematical problem, as it were, from the perspective of Yeridata Darot, that normally we assume earlier generations uh, possess greater Torah insight, it's a problem which the Midrash addresses. Lav Rabbi Yochanan Rabbah min Rebbe, ela Rebbe al shahaya samuch lechorban beit mikdash hayaniskar vahayadoresh ibocher umitaneach. Rebbe, because he was closer to the korban, closer to destruction, he wasn't really able physically to get beyond twenty-four ways. He would expound and immediately begin to cry. And he would try to persevere, and he would expound again, but ultimately, he would be overcome by grief. Because Rebbe was closer to the Chorban. He was, let's say, 130 years after, or maybe only 70 or so years after, after the um, destruction of Beitar, which we will discuss. But Rabbi Yochanan, on the other hand, because Rabbi Yochanan was not close to the destruction of the Beit Mikdash, he was able to continue to expound 24 ways, 25, 26, all the way up to 60 ways of looking at this verse. And in a sense, this little passage, this phrase from the Midrash is something that we can all relate to. The destruction that we experienced thousands of years ago is so far away from us, is so foreign, not only geographically, but chronologically, that sometimes we feel, what can we do with Eicha? What can we do with this book of Lamentations? But on the other hand, interestingly enough, Rabbi Yochanan was able to expound it in 60 ways. It's almost as if the distance allowed for greater insight, greater understanding than even Rebbe had. This is, a, this is an idea that actually reverses the trend of Yuridata Dorot. And one beautiful teaching that co sort of corresponds to this is what we do with the Pesach Seder. Famously, we're enjoined to recount the going out of Egypt. And the Svat Emet, a major Hasidic figure, has the following insight based on the verse that the Jews were not able to listen to Moshe from the shortness of breath and from the difficulty of the labor. Now, of course, that simply meant they were so involved 
in the labor, the backbreaking in labor in Egypt, they couldn't appreciate the events that were unfolding. But what the Svarimet shows is that in fact we, sitting at the Seder, trying to recount the events in Egypt, are able to really experience it in a deeper and more comprehensive, fuller way. The people who were living at the time were in such a state of despair, of difficulty, that they couldn't appreciate the events that happened. And we, thousands of years later, are actually able to perhaps know more than those people who experienced it actually did. And we have the same thing here with the Midrash. That the Midrash, Echa Rabbah, is built on the assumption that we actually, as much as we may not be emotionally as connected as previous generations, are able to achieve greater insight and greater understanding. And in a way, not to say that we're as great as Rabbi Yochanan, if only one generation later Rabbi Yochanan was able to expound more than twice the number of the way Rabbi was, then perhaps this gives us license to look at the events that unfolded, the destruction, um, in new ways, and maybe unanticipated ways. And that is by way of introduction. What we're going to try to do the next four weeks and today is look at a, a book called Midrash Echa. Now, most of us know what a Midrash is. It's a, it's, it's a comment sometimes on a verse in the Torah that looks at it in a, in a new and an exciting way. But usually we hear snippets. Rashi quotes Midrash, another Mepharish quotes Midrash, the Rabbi in Shul quotes Midrash. What I want to do today is actually work through long sections of Midrash, which I hope will give us a new, really, appreciation for what Midrash is. Now, obviously, we can't work through everything because it is a lot of text, but that's sort of the goal here, to give a taste of what this Midrash is all about. Now, just to situate things historically, Midrash Echa Rabbah is one of the earliest Midrashim that we have. Right? We know that we have Midrash for all of Torah, we have Midrash for um, most of the books of Midrash Rabbah for, for uh, most of the books of the um, five Megillot and other sections of Tanakh. But as much as you might be able to go to a shelf and take off a volume that says Midrash, really the different Midrashim were put together at different times. So some of the earliest Midrashim are Bereshit Rabbah, the Midrash and Bereshit, Vayikra Rabbah, the Midrash and Vayikra, and Echa Rabbah, the Midrash and Echa. And it is primarily a work from the Amorayim, from the generation, generations that follow the Tanaim, from let's say the beginning of the third century until the end of the fourth century. And that's an important point historically. As much as there is some removal from the events, a few centuries in fact, from the events of the Korban, the things are still fresh. The destruction is still fresh. The Jewish community had not fully reconstituted itself at this time. And really, it was a trauma of hundreds of years following not only the Chorban of the Migdash itself, but the destruction that was unleashed uh, 50, 60 years later as the revolt, the second revolt of the Jews, was finally crushed by the Romans. And again, that trauma lasted for hundreds of years. And really, one can feel the sense that the Chorban is not only fresh, but something that's encountered every single day, something that's real. And that's something also to keep in mind as we work through this. Another thing to keep in mind, and that has to do with the nature of different kinds of Midrash, is normally we divide Midrash into two different kinds. There's what's called exegetical Midrash, a Midrash that comments on nearly every single word and tries to explain what it does. And there's something called homiletical Midrash, Midrash which is more interested in a broader me message. So for example, Vayikra Rabbah is a Midrash that is a homiletical Midrash. It's not as interested in commenting on every single word by getting the sense of an entire parsha, while Bereshit Rabbah is a midrash that really takes you through the text, almost like Rashi, though doing different things, and tries to explain every single word. Echa Rabbah is really two different books. One is the first section, which is homiletical, and that is a section of petichtot, proems, different approaches to the event of the destruction, and the book of Echa in general, and each one of these sections poetically ends the same way, that God laments the destruction of the people, and then you go on to the next pro. The part of the, the second half of the book, which we're going to be focused on, uh, focusing on this summer, is exegetical. It's interested in interpreting, explaining, commenting upon different words in each verse, and it goes in order. And that really is the form that's going to kind of move us through the events. As much as that's true, there are long tangents during these exegesis, during these comments, and 
Today, especially, we're going to focus on one of those very long tangents. Okay, so we have our introduction to the Midrash of Eicha and sort of just generally what it is, its historical background and context. Another thing that we need to think about is that destruction is experienced and grief is experienced in many different ways. We all know there are different stages of grief. And I've sort of picked and chosen um, different stages of grief that I think one can really identify in the Midrash and can give us new insight into the destruction that we experience during these three weeks of, of, of the summer and also destruction and, and, and lament that we unfortunately sometimes experience in life. And they are, like the title of the, uh, the series, and you'll notice there's a word that's been added, denial, rage, consolation, and hope. Right? I don't know if this occurs normally in order. I'm not a psychologist. But these are four common ways that people experience and come to terms with destruction um, of great magnitude, of national magnitude, like the destruction of the Eid Mikdash, and also in a more personal level. So today we're going to look at denial. Right? So in a way, we're going to move away from destruction. We're going to find that as much as this book of Midrash Echa is full of heart-rending rending, um, images of the Chorban, of just things that really give you goosebumps, the most horrific images that you can ever imagine, and hopefully we won't even try to focus on that when we talk about the other stages. Today, that's going to disappear, a mirage. And we have to realize that, again, in the historical context, when the land of Israel is still kind of riddled with the bullet holes of this destruction, that's a remarkable thing. So the real question that's going to sit in front of us this morning is how and why. Why does this happen? Why is just the destruction denied and a new reality imagined? And why? So how does this happen? What are the mechanics of this? And why does it happen? Now, there are different kinds of denial, and that's going to take us to the first source on our handout. The first two sources are in Hebrew. I do not have a translation, but I'm going to read it with translation. And <clears throat> even if you don't know Eicha by heart, the book of Eicha by heart, you probably know the first verse or two, um, and that is Eicha Yashva Badad. How does, Eicha is an important word that we're going to look at, the city sit in solitude, the city that was great with people. So after a very short discussion of this word, Echa, which we'll get to in a bit, the Midrash launches into a long, long, long section about the words, that the, the city that was great with people, that was full of people, multitudes of people. And we have a dis- description of Yerushalayim. Tani Rabbi Shmuel, Esrim Ba'arba Paltiyota Yerushalayim. If there are any mathematicians here, that will help, because you're going to see kind of an expansion of numbers of people in Yerushalayim and divisions. So you have 24 of these different kinds of streets in Jerusalem. And on each street, on, on each street, there were 24 marketplaces, which comes out to 566 marketplaces, because if you have 24 times 24, that's uh, 576, I'm sorry, marketplaces in the city of Jerusalem. And we further divide, right? It's almost like the vision of a, of a cell as it, as it divides and becomes greater and more cells. And each of these 567 marketplaces, there were 24 little marketplaces. And he goes and expands the numbers greater and greater and greater, right? Multiplying the numbers of how intricate and large and gigantic the city of Jerusalem was. We'll skip down a few lines. One, two, three, four, five lines down towards the end of the line. And really this reality of Jerusalem where there are millions of compartments and different aspects to the city fulfills what the verse says in Malachim, Yehuda Yisrael Rabim Kachol Asher Tzvatayam Larod. So it fulfills one of the many prophecies of the expansion and the numerous numbers of the Jews. And this fulfills the verse, Ha'irabatiya, the city that was that had many people. It doesn't just mean that it had many people, but that those, those letters, Reish Vav, seem to signify an expansion, like that cell which breaks down and becomes more and more cells. So the, the, he paints this intricate image of a city um, especially if you're familiar with kind of the medieval art of how a city is, is, is depicted with 
little little boxes and little boxes within those boxes, this is the image he wants to convey. And we have another ex- uh, explanation of how great Jerusalem was. Rabbi Yeshua de Sichnin b'shem Rabbi Levi Amar Lamahadavar Domen. Right? What was the situation like? There's so many people living in Jerusalem that really there was a problem of taking a census. How could you figure out how many people lived in the city to deliver the services services that the people needed? So the situation was like It was like a large pile that was in a silo. If you're in, if you have a large pile of grain that's in a silo, it's impossible to calculate how many little pieces of, of food, of produce, are in that silo. What it, what is to be done? Jerusalem is again kind of depicted as this enclosed in, in, a, in a structure that people can't be counted. How does one count? There was one wise man. Amar lahem, he said to them, If you want to figure out how many pieces of grain are in the silo, you can do so by figuring out how, many, how much was taken as truma. Truma generally is supposed to be about one fiftieth. There's a disagreement of exactly how much is the recommended amount. So you can work back from the smaller amount that was taken out of the silo to figure out how much was actually in the silo. So if you want to take this census, you could again use the priests to figure this out. And then there's a discussion as to how they use different parts of sacrifices to calculate how many people brought the sacrifices? And that's how the section continues. So again, you have, and this is just, as you can see, I have an ellipsis here because there's so much text. You have a long section that tries to picture what Jerusalem was like in its heyday before the, dis- the, the destruction. And it truly is remarkable. Obviously, this isn't supposed to be historical that there were 24 times 24 times 24, but the, this is called Lashon Guzma an exaggerated language for effect, but the effect is supposed to convey a certain sense of reality, a reality in which the city was enormous, gigantic, with compartments upon compartments, a city where you couldn't really take a census, where you couldn't figure out how many people were there because there were so many and they were all enclosed in the city and one had to use all kinds of ingenious methods by measuring their sacrifices, different bones from their sacrifices, etc., etc., so that's one kind of denial that we find in the, this, this book. One kind of denial in Midrash Rabbah is the sense that Jerusalem is not destroyed. Not only is it not destroyed, it's bustling and hustling with people. So many of them that they can't be counted. And that's a form of denial. And I'll just raise the question here, um, you know, which we sort of started with, is why? With what does denial do? What does it accomplish? And there's sort of a simple, more obvious reason, and there I think there are more sophisticated reasons. Any any takers to this question? We see a, an interesting form of denial here, denial of the destruction. I, I'm sorry, I don't see Okay, well, that's actually a good point. Let's remember what the verse is that we're trying to explain here. This isn't just, you know, a, a description of Jerusalem that's kind of floating in the air, but we're trying to explain the words Ha'ir right, the city which is many people. So yes, it's a way of describing how is it many people. But if you see kind of the level of text, it, it will ultimately lead to rage. But I think there is a sort of attempt to picture just a city that defies imagination, that is really very much unlike the city that's in front of them. It's more of a literary denial. Of course, no one's saying, we deny the destruction. They know the destruction is there. But I think the effort of this Midrash to go to great lengths to describe the city in a very different light, a city that's bustling with people, to me, and I guess we can argue about this, is a form of denial. Yes? How so? Good, perfect. And that's exactly what the verse is doing in in in, in the pasuk. The reason why, right? The, the pasuk says Ha'ira Bati'an, 
right? That the city was full of many people. What does that have to do with the message of the book of Eicha, of, of Sefer Eicha, the book in Tanakh? Most of the Sefer is interested in describing the destruction, describing the pillaging and the starvation and all of the terrible things that happened to the Jews. So what are those three words about? It's trying to basically kind of build up an image of what it was. If Jerusalem was just some dinky town before the destruction, there were a few families living there, right? As many ancient, we know many ancient towns were very small, even if they're called cities. So Jerusalem was small, and then they were destroyed. It wouldn't be such a great tragedy. So yes, the mechanism seems to be that, maybe we'll call it else besides denial, we'll get to real forms of denial, but this, uh, this, this attempt to picture Jerusalem something great and enormous when it's no longer that is a way of leading up to the destruction, allowing for an appreciation and perhaps later a rage against the destruction because this wasn't just a dinky town. This was an incredibly robust, cosmopolitan, large happening place that was then destroyed. And that heightens the tragedy and makes it something worse, makes it something more tragic than if it was just a small place. I saw other hands. Yes. Okay. Well, here it, it might be the opposite. Not In praise, other words, but, but of, of recognition of, this, of the power of Hashem. Correct. There, this is basically we could almost call this a virtual genre in Chazal. That Chazal often tried to show. You know, the, the, the great numbers of things, you know, how large they really were. So with the Makkah, for example, you read Chumash, and you see there were ten Makot, and that's it. And then we have this Midrash, which is, called, which is from the Mechilta, actually, a Midrash Halakha, that goes and describes how many plagues, 50, 40, enormous amounts of plagues that took place at the Yamsuf, and, you know, kind of, again, are there to have this expansion of numbers. But I think the context is very different, it's almost the opposite. There, it is leading up to a kind of praise because at least from our perspective, the destruction of the Egyptians, the greater it was, the more horrific it was. In a sense, we are happier, obviously we have an idea that we're not fully happy when the Egyptians are destroyed, but it does lead to a kind of shevach and praise of God. Here, it's the opposite, and as we'll see, it does seem to lead to a kind of rage that we're gonna talk about later, where, where the Midrash kind of asks very hard questions of God. And yes, I think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on is that we have a city built up in the imagination, in the rabbinic ima imagination, that then will be torn down in the historical reality, which allows the Midrash to continue on its main project of describing the destruction, raging against it, questioning it, trying to figure out why it happened. Okay, we, just, we have to move on, so we're gonna go to the next section. The next section is a different kind of denial, which we're going to really look at in greater depth later um, in the summer. And that is, by the way, I know the class is officially supposed to be just until 12, but I will warn you that we're probably going to go to 12.15. That was a glitch. You can leave, and I apologize for that glitch, but I don't think we could accomplish what we need to in that time. Yes? I can't clarify. It was Well, that's an interesting question. Sometimes it's it, it does refer to Chorban by Rishon. Often when it, when it explains different verses, different psukim that describe the Chorban, those are going to be describing Chorban by Rishon. But it's clear that the greater interest in the Medrash is in Chorban by Sheni. Even when it's talking about the first Chorban, which is all we have from Tanakh to describe, there's no Tanakh, there's no Svarim from Tanakh from 70 CE, it's clear that they're trying to extrapolate from that Chorban to try to understand Chorban Bayit Sheni. So really the focus is of that fresh wound of Chorban Bayit. Now there's a second kind of denial, a different form of denial, which we're going to try to look at later. And that is an attempt to soften the wound, to soften the descriptions of what Jerusalem is like and how Jerusalem kind of existentially is lonely and alone. And also, and this we're going to look at uh, in depth next week, the culpability of the people, right? One would assume, especially, um, you know, from many of the many of the descriptions of tochacha, in uh, of rebuke in the Torah, that you would see destruction like that, 
And I know Rabbi Angel talked about a different way of looking at that Yirmiyahu advanced, but you see destruction, a massive destruction, and you're well-versed in Dvarim, and the Tochacha there, and in Vayikra, and the Tochacha there, and you know, hey, terrible destruction is, is punishment for terrible sin. And that would almost be the obvious reaction. So you have also a denial, which we're going to explore later, that it's entirely fair, that it's entirely such a great destruction, and that it's really fully, that the people are really culpable for this destruction. And this is from the next part, and this just continues the first section. Number two, the next verse, Haitak Almana, that Jerusalem is now described as an Almana, a widow, right? It was Ha'ira Bati'ah, full of people, but now it is a widow. But listen to how the specific description of what kind of widow is described here. Normally, a widow is a woman whose husband has died. That's what a widow is. That's what an almana is. But the Midrash doesn't want to understand it this way because that is truly tragic. A widow, her husband will not return. And that is just too hard to bear as a description of Jerusalem. So look at what the Midrash does. Number two. Shehi Yoshevet aguna. This is not the technical definition of an aguna and halakha, someone who is waiting for a get but has not received it. This is a woman who, in a sense, has been abandoned. Her husband is away on a very far journey, and he hasn't come back for a long time, but she's waiting for him to return. She's waiting for him to come back. And that, that's really not what an almana is. That's not the shot of what a widow is. A widow is someone whose husband will never return. But the fact that it says that Jerusalem is like a widow means that she's not really like a widow. Now, grammatically, you can use like to compare two things and say Jerusalem is on one side, a widow is on the other side, and Jerusalem is like a widow. But, but the rabbis here kind of do a hyper-reading of this like, of this kit, and it says it's, it's not equal. It's like a widow, not actually a widow, but Jerusalem is an approximation of a widow, a woman who is waiting for her husband to return. Velo almana mamash, I underlined, and not a real widow. And it quotes a pasuk in Yirmiyahu that says this, kilo alman Yisrael v'yudam Right, interesting here, it talks about a widower, that Yisrael is not a widower, and Yehuda is not a widower from its God. Ki almanan, we have further dis- descriptions of this. So that was trying to say that as much as Jerusalem looks like a widow, Jerusalem looks abandoned and abandoned for good, it is not abandoned for good. Another historical thing that we have to keep in mind here is as much as the Jewish people were starting to kind of reconstitute themselves when the Midrash was written and compiled, Jerusalem was still abandoned. After the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s, the Jews left that entire part of the country. Maybe a few families remained and moved north, moved to the Golan, to the Galil, that area. So Jerusalem really is abandoned. And one would think that it's truly an almana. It's truly not going to have its husband come back. It's not going to have the Shekhinah, God, come back. And therefore, that's what makes us almost more courageous and more powerful to say, no, it might look like an almana, a full almana, but it is not. And the Midrash goes on to do similar things here, but tries to soften the culpability of the people. I'm Rabbi Ivo. This is the second line. They didn't chase after the Midatadin. They didn't chase after the rule of law. So too the rule of law does not chase after them. Kind of a cryptic statement. And look what he says. The Jewish people never really chased after the rule of law. They never fully denied. Even when they sinned terribly, they never fully denied the rule of law. For example, Vayiam Kimitonanim, right? And the nation was complaining in the desert, in Bamidbar. It doesn't say that they were complaining, Mitonanim in Khan, Ela Kimitonanim. So it's another Midrashic use of this chaf, right? Where we're not trying to just compare two things and say they were equivalent, but we soften the culpability. It's a condemnation of the looter leaders of Judah, that they were like people who stole boundaries, who stole property. It doesn't say they were actually stealers of property. 
And the Midrash goes on to say that, 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 that what would seem to be full culpability of the people is softened by this persistent use of chav, which again, grammatically, is fully accountable, but the Midrash is trying to say that this is really not so. And finally, an echa darach kashto oyev, describing God kind of getting his spears out and, 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 and his relationship to the Jewish people is like an enemy. It basically means God is acting like an enemy. Again, it uses, the Midrash uses the chaf, this is the last line of this section, to soften it. It doesn't say that God is actually an enemy. another pasuk. God is just like an enemy and not actually an enemy. So we have another kind of way of softening the reality, denying the reality. One, Jerusalem might look like a full almanah, but it is not. It is only like an almanah, a different kind of almanah. Two, the people might look fully culpable, especially the leaders, but they're not really culpable. They're like they did this terrible thing, but they didn't really do the terrible thing. And also God's response to this punishment, to these sins, is not really as terrible as it seems. God may seem to be acting like an enemy, but it's only like an enemy, it's not actually an enemy. Yes? Correct. Beautiful. And that's, I think, another aspect of what a kind of denial does. We might even want to say this about the descriptions of Jerusalem. If you'll buy my argument that such energy expended into the descriptions is for something else than just setting up the destruction. And that is moving towards hope. In other words, when one denies the harsh reality, one is basically saying that this reality that we look at, that we look at in front of us could really be something else entirely, could really be something much better. Or this harsh reality, which seems so harsh, God seems to be acting like an oyev, like a true enemy, is really not as bad as it, as it seems. He's only like an enemy. So it is a form of hope as well. The third section, and this we can turn to our translation, is another um, interesting form of denial, and I actually want to spend most of our time on this, even though we don't have that much time left. And that is looking at kind of a denial of the reality as a way that one can work out some of the issues that, are, that, that arise after the destruction of Jerusalem and really of the land of Israel. And this is, I think, the most fascinating section of the Midrash. A few, really, lines later, after what we just led, there is a long section. And when I say long, I mean long. Look at, you know, number three. It goes on for pages. And I cut it off before the end. It's a long section that officially is trying to comment on, because it is an exegetical midrash, is trying to comment on the words Rabati Begoyim. Right? Rabati Begoyim again means great amongst the nations, and it's kind of like a Ha'i Rabati Am kind of phrase in the Pasuk. It's one of the few places in Echa where things looked fine and dandy, because again, it seems to be there's a setup. It used to be Rabati Begoyim, but now it's cast aside, neglected, etc. So officially, that's what the Midrash is trying to do. And it has pretty typical Midrashic techniques for explaining this. The Midrash never accepts repetition in Tanakh. Even if you might want to say it's for poetic reasons, that's not the case. The Midrash says, it already said, we already know about the great multitudes of people. What is the Pasuk trying to teach us by again emphasizing the greatness of Jerusalem. So the Midrash says it's not about numbers. It's not about what we described before, the complexity of you know, the urban planning in Jerusalem. Really it means that Jerusalem was great in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Any place a Jerusalemite would go, they used to set up a fancy chair. It's uh, fitting that in modern Hebrew, cathedra is actually generally used to describe a university chair, an academic chair. They would set up an academic chair for him in order to hear his wisdom. And that is nice exegesis of the words It doesn't simply mean great amongst the nations, but great in wisdom. That's what this greatness is referring to. 
fine, no big deal. But what then happens, and this is in the translation in front of you, is we have 11 riddles, 11 stories that contain riddles in them that try to, 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 that try to describe the way in which Jerusalemites, which is kind of you know, personifying all of the Jews living in the land of Israel, were these incredibly wise people and wise in relation to the Athenians. So we have that classical typological clash now between Jerusalem and between Athens. Now, of course, Athens was not the superpower at this time. It was Rome. But it's clear that Athens is a Western city, a Western city from the perspective of Jerusalem, that signifies and personifies wisdom, and it still did at this point in late antiquity. And therefore, the opposition is going to be very fruitful, as we'll see, between the wise Jerusalemites and the supposedly wise Athenians. And that's what this section tries to do. But again, as we're reading through this, and we won't be able to look at all of the stories, I want to think about the question of, again, why is so much energy expended here? It's not just a little story. We already had our little story. Wherever Jerusalemite would go, they would set up a chair for him, and he would hit down and expound his wisdom, and everyone would listen. Why is there so much energy expended to describe and tell stories about the wisdom of Jerusalemites? The first story, which we won't read inside, is entertaining, as many of them are. It's about a Jerusalemite who goes abroad, and he goes far away to the city of Athens. He takes up residence at someone's house and dies there. And before he dies, he tells the, his host, please, when my son comes for his inheritance to take his Yerusha, don't just give it to him, but test him with a series of riddles. The son then hears of his father's death. He comes to Athens looking for where his father was staying and trying to get his papers in order. And there's a series of riddles that the Athenian uses to try to test the Jerusalemite as his father had requested. So he doesn't tell him that he's here. He doesn't tell him where his father stayed. And the Jerusalemite has to figure out in kind of an ingenious way where his father stayed. And then he has two tests as to how to divide the food when all of the Athenian's family is there. And the Jerusalemite passes each of the tests, each of the tests, to the point where you almost wonder whether the Athenian really knew what he was doing when he was organizing these tests. The Jerusalemite kind of succeeds in showing his wisdom, and he takes his Yerusha and goes home. Let's bracket that story for a second and actually read another story about, again, Jerusalemites going abroad and going to the city of Athens. Any volunteers? We're going to read this one in English. You have the Hebrew. It's actually pretty difficult. Galilean Aramaic, so you can refer to it, but it's not an easy read in Hebrew. Um, so any, any volunteers for number two on the, first, on, the, on the first page of the English? Let me actually just give a quick plug for where this, first of, all, first of all, cite where this translation comes from and give a plug for the book that it comes from. It's from a book um, that originally was written in Hebrew by Galit Hassan Rokem called Ritmat HaChayim, but it is now available in English at, under the title Web of Life. And it's really a book about Echa Raba. She's a folklorist, though, so she uses ingenious methods to really tease out greater meaning from this midrash. Galit is her first name, Hassan Rokem, H-A-S-A-N slash R-O-K-E-M. And this is her translation of these 11 tales from that book. So again, any volunteers for number two? Great. Four men of Jerusalem went to Athens and stayed with a certain man. In the evening, he prepared a meal for them. While they were eating and drinking, he set four beds for them, one of them downy. After they had eaten and drunk, he said, I have heard that the men of Jerusalem are extremely wise. I will go in and lie there among them to find out what they say. The one who was lying on the damaged bed woke up and said, You may think that I am lying on the bed, but I am actually lying on the ground. The second one got up and said, is that any wonder? The meat he gave us tasted like dog's meat. The third got up and said, Is that any wonder? The wine we drank had the taste of the grave. The fourth got up and said, Is that any wonder? The man himself, the proprietor, is not the son of his father. At this the proprietor said, One is telling the truth and three are lying. In other words, because the proprietor knew that he gave them a broken bed, 
But he assumed that the meat he gave them was good, that the wine he gave them that was good, and that he was his mother's son, his father's son. He rose in the morning, went to the butcher, and said to him, Take payment and give me the same meat as last night. He said to him, I have none. He said to him, Was there anything special about it? He said to him, I had a kid whose mother died, and I had a nursing bitch, and the kid nursed from her, and when you came in the evening and pressed me, I had no meat to give you, and I slaughtered that kid and gave you the meat. At that point, he said, two are telling the truth and two are lying. Right, so now he realizes, oh, indeed, the meat that I actually gave did t taste like dog meat, even though I didn't know. Okay. He went to the wine merchant and said to him, take payment and give me the same wine as last night. He said to him, I have none. He said to him, was there anything special about it? He said to him, I have a vine that grows on the grave of our father, and you pressed me, and I had none to give you, so I gave you of that wine. At that point, he said, three are telling the truth, and one is lying. Okay, so we sort of know where this is leading. Yes. He, the proprietor, said, this man, the proprietor himself, must go and check with his mother. Because now he's nervous. Look, three <laughs> things are true. Let's, let's figure out what my status is. He went to his mother and said to her, whose son am I? She said to him, your father's. He said to her, tell me the truth. Whose son am I? Or I will kill you now. Violent. She said to him, your father could not have a child. Did I not do well when I prostituted myself and brought you this property instead of letting it go to someone else? At that point, they, the Athenians, said, Will the men of Jerusalem come to us and make us all bastards? They agreed that they would not take in people from Jerusalem. Okay. It's a very entertaining story. And it's a fascinating story that kind of, you know, ostensibly pits the supposedly wise Athenians against the truly wise Jerusalemites, but it does it in a very folksy, sort of folktale kind of way. Actually, this tale is a common tale. You can look it up in the, you know, the, the folk motif um, volumes, and you will find that there are different versions of this tale throughout the world. But it's adapted in a very specific way here. Again, initially, there is a riddle that the owner, the proprietor, uses to test the wisdom of the Athenians. And he wants to know kind of how they will deal with the fact that one of the beds is broken and you know three people will be sleeping on good beds. How are they going to kind of work out this riddle, this problem? But what happens is, is that the riddle turns on its head because the Jerusalemites point out, kind of give a riddle, as it were, to the proprietor. And they say, Actually, you know, it's not just the bed, but it's the meat, it's the wine, it's actually the legitimacy, the status of the proprietor. And he goes through a process of trying to verify, you know, this supposed, you know, this kind of revelation or riddle, as it were, from the Jerusalemites. And the setup is great. It's a classic setup. He starts with the meat. He finds out the meat really was, as the Jerusalemites said, terrible. He goes to the wine and finds out the wine also was terrible. And kind of the climactic moment is the moment when he finds out that really the person he thought was his father is not his father at all. Now, aside from you know accomplishing the goal of showing Rabatiba Abagoyin that the Jews are wise and wiser than the you know supposedly wise Athenians, there's another thing going on which is a very common motif in folklore and folklore of this type of riddles. And that is kind of a pathway to self-knowledge. The Athenian doesn't really know who he is at the beginning. He doesn't know that he doesn't know who he is, but he doesn't know who he is. And he kind of goes through motions and stages and processes to then figure out who he is at the end. Let's keep that in mind and go on to the next story. There's a lot to discuss here, and you know we're going to try to wrap it up at the end. Let's then skip, um, skip down to... The eighth, the seventh, and the eighth story. That's on page 49 at the bottom. Now, there's a series of stories that are about not just Athenians and Jerusalemites, but adult Athenians and, uh, you know, J Jerusalemite children, youth, which kind of heightens the problem and kind of heightens not the problem, but the opposition between the wise Athenians and not just the wise Jerusalemites, but even the wise children from Jerusalem. So look at story number seven here. Anyone want to read this? An Athenian went to Jerusalem. 
Yes. I was sitting in my to Jerusalem and met a boy. He said, take this money and bring me enough food so that I can eat and be satisfied and have some left to take with me. He went and brought him salt. He said to him, did I tell you to bring me salt? He said to him, you said you wanted to eat to be satisfied and have some left. By your light, there is enough for you to eat, to be satisfied, and have leftovers to take with you. In other words, the story is not entirely clear, but it seems that the Athenian didn't really give him enough money to truly get to buy purchase for him food that would be enough to then leave over. And it's a riddle of sort again, sorts again. You know, figure out how to pull this one off, you Jerusalemite. Figure out how to buy enough food so that I will leave over. And he actually comes up with an interesting response. You definitely won't use all of the salt that I'm giving you, so I'll buy the salt. And you'll then leave, leave it over. Why don't you also read um, the eighth story? An Athenian came to Jerusalem and found a broken mortar. He took it and went to a tailor. He said to him, sew this mortar for me. He, the tailor, took a handful of sand and said to him, spin thread from this and I will sew it for you. Right. So again, you have the same sort of motif. You have the Athenian thinks he's all smart and he brings a broken mortar and he asks the tailor to sew it. Taylor knows how to sew shoes, so obviously can sew mortar together. It's a challenge that really cannot be met. And the response is, well, I have an even greater challenge for you. You, you supply with me the threads from this sand, and then I will, I will put this together. Now, these two stories, which are much less elaborate and to a certain extent much less entertaining, depict the reverse side of the coin. The first couple of stories are about Jerusalemites traveling abroad. And there is kind of a sense of loss there, if we really think about it. In the first case, the father dies. In the first case, the son tries to get the Yusha. But that's the, you know, kind of the, 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 the beginning moment of that story. So not only is it exile before the real exile, but it's a moment of death. The second story especially kind of heightens a sense of loss, even during this entertaining um, story. right? The, the wine doesn't just taste bad because it's bad, but because it rose next to the grave of his father. And not, you know, the, the moment of self-discovery is kind of a terrible moment for the proprietor as well. What I want to point out here, and also in the last two stories, with an emphasis on salt and broken mortars, is that as much as these 11 tales are entertaining, fun, light, merry, and ways of showing we're greater than the Athenians, there also is, and those are just a few examples, kind of a, a, a very, very um, quiet sense of loss that can be detected here, that not all is fine and dandy in all of these stories. We'll get back to that as well. I want to go then to um, story number 10 very quickly. I'll read this one. Um, and it is about kind of the result of the Athenians learning of Jerusalemite wisdom. They know that Jerusalemites are wise, so let's go and figure out how to become wise like them. Let's go study in their schools. And Athenian went to Jerusalem, this is page 50, wanting to learn wisdom. He spent three and a half years there and learned nothing. As he was about to leave, he brought a slave who was blind, who, he bought a slave who was blind in one eye. The man who sold him, sold him said to the buyer, by your life, he is very wise and sees far. Right? You may think he's one-eyed, but actually is able to see very far. When they had gone some distance from the city gate, he, the slave, said to him, let's go that we may overtake that caravan in front of us. He said to him, what caravan in front of us? So the slave said to him, there's a she-camel blind in one eye, and she has two twins in her womb, and is carrying two skins, one of wine on this side and one of vinegar on that side. And the camel driver is a Gentile, and it is four miles away. <laughs> so this one-eyed slave somehow is able to see far more than even a two-eyed owner, master. He said to him, how do you know that she is blind in one eye? He said to him, from the grass that she grazes on one side, but not on the other. So in other words, she only see, eats the grass that she, can sees, she, that she can see. How do you know that she has twins in her womb? He said to him, I saw where she lays down the tracks of both of them. And how do you know that she is carrying a skin of, one, of wine on one side and a skin of vinegar on the other? He said to him, from the dripping. Since wine seeps into the ground, but vinegar seeds. So he sees this all on the ground in the tracks. And finally, how do you know that the camel driver is Gentile? He said to him, because a Gentile urinates on the road and a Jew does not, and I see that he has urinated. 
And how do you know that it is four miles away? He said to him from the hoof marks, since a camel's hooves can be recognized for up to four miles. But farther than four miles, they cannot be recognized. So we have, a again, kind of almost a, a common widespread folk story about the ability of someone you don't think to really be able to see actually can see and can see far better than the Athenian. And again, that is the motif that runs through all of this. Rabatibo Goyi means not just that Jerusalemites are wise, but they're wiser than the other nations, according to the Midrash. And they're wiser than, than the, the wisest of nations, than the Athenians. And this story as well kind of illustrates this in a dramatic way by showing that even this one-eyed slave from Jerusalem is able to see incredible things and at great distances. And finally, um, number 11, I won't read all of it, and it is rather troubling. Uh, there was an Athenian who made fun of Jerusalemites, and basically there's a plan to try to bring him and make a fool out of him, and that's what they do. They convince him to come to the city, to shave his head, to look funny, basically, and then it's sort of arranged that people will beat him on the head with a sandal. And the final line here is, from now on, don't ever make fun of the people of Jerusalem. And it, it is kind of, it's, it's such a violent ending that it is somewhat troubling. But it expresses a sentiment that's very real. And that was very real at the time. First of all, at the time of the destruction, right? After the Jewish people were destroyed, they lost the illusion that they were the most powerful people in the region, if they ever even had that illusion. They lost the illusion that they were invincible. And when that happens, you can do a number of things. You can mourn, and you can cry, and you can feel terrible about it. Or you can envision another realm, another arena, as it were, where, in fact, you still best your oppressors. Again, it wasn't the Greeks who came in, but it was the Romans. But Athens signifies and symbolizes the wisdom of the Greeks. So they're not going to be able to achieve political dominance. And that's not what these stories are about. But they are about imagining a world kind of denying the fact that they are beaten, a world in which the Jews can best the Athenians in wisdom and in knowledge. And kind of the most extreme example is that final line where they say, from now on, don't ever make fun of the people of Jerusalem. But it kind of it works through all of the stories. And that's really, I think, what's going on in this impressive effort to work through all of these stories. That's kind of the meta image and the bigger image. But there also is the image and the idea of the riddle. What is a riddle and what does it try to achieve and accomplish and why is it used here to such extensive effect in Echa? So riddles seem to be a way of doing two things, of showing that the world ultimately can be explained, that the world ultimately has some kind of reason guiding it. So even though it may seem like a riddle, it may seem hard to understand, ultimately the Jerusalemites figure it out, and they're always on the winning end. At the same time, the power of the riddle, and what makes a riddle a riddle, is that it's not yet solved. But if you just have a solution, that's not a riddle. A riddle, by definition, is a problem, is a question that has not yet achieved a solution. And that also seems to be working through these 11 tales and also the book of, of Midrash Echa in general. The ultimate riddle here in this entire Midrash, which is constantly in the minds of the rabbis who appear in it and is on all of the pages of Midrash, is the riddle of the destruction. And the riddle of the destruction is actually kind of telescoped with that one word, Echa. How? How could this have happened? I mean, really, it's in a sense, it's in the pshat of the pasuk, depending on how you read it. Echa yashva badad. Echa, how perhaps does she sit in solitude, the city that was once great? It's an ultimate riddle, and it's an ultimate riddle whenever someone really faces destruction that is unfair. Now, the word echa, I just translated it as how, but it actually works in different ways, and I'm going to close with this, with this. Um, line from the opening of the main section of the Book of Echa. There's actually a debate as to what Echa means between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nefanya. I'm sorry this isn't on the handout, but I'll just tell it to you briefly. These are two Amarayim, two Tanaim, I'm sorry, who, who lived close to the time of the destruction. And they want to figure out what the word Echa means. It's kind of a curious word. 
Rabbi Nehemia Amar, Ein Lashon Echa Elashon Kina. And that's actually how the Tanakh in front of me trans- translates it. The word Echa means a lament. It's not really a question of how, it's a lament. Echa, alas, in the way it's translated in front of me. That's one way of understanding it. And he cites proof from a Pasuk in Bereshit. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Ein Lashon Echa Elashon Tochecha. The word Echa is not a lament but it's actually a rebuke. It's, you can almost hear it in the different ways you might want to voice the word how. Right? If someone gets in trouble, if my child has done something wrong, I could either say, how is it possible that this occurred? Or how is it possible that this occurred? It's, it's a tochecha, it's rebuke. How could you have lost such an incredible thing you had going for it? You were the people of Jerusalem. You were the people of Zion. You had an incredible city. You had something special. You had wisdom. You had everything going for you. How could you have lost it? It's a tochecha, according to Rabbi uh, Yehuda. Uh, Rabbi Nechemia. So those are two, two, two Tanaim. Yes? That also the Midrash does. And that also is seen as, really in the next section, is seen as a, for, as a form of rebuke. In other words, obviously the pshat is that it means a word like how or less, but just as Adam when God was looking for him, where are you, was basically rebuking him. What did you do? You're hiding from me. That also is operative. I don't have time to elaborate on that part, but that is a very powerful message that Midrash works with. But just looking at that, almost different ways of intoning that, that word, Eicha, which is what the Midrash seems to be doing, as just a lament or as a, as a rebuke, I think we have an idea here that will sort of sum up um, some of this denial and some of the riddles actually and bring us to the next week as well. The one that says that it's a rebuke is really following an old tradition in Judaism that there is a very clear correlation between sin and punishment. You do something wrong and you will be punished. Again, you read the sections in Vayikra and Varim about the Tochacha and it's pretty clear that this is how at least the Pshad is how it's supposed to work. And therefore, when it does happen, when destruction does occur on the scale that it did in Jerusalem, according to one approach, Eicha, how could this have happened? How could you have done this? How could you, how could you have dropped the ball? And that's one approach to the riddle, the ultimate riddle of the book of Midrash Eicha Rabbah, which tries to figure out how the destruction occurred. How did it happen? It's rebuke, because you made it happen. And we're going to see that there are many ideas as to which specific sins the Jews did to merit this kind of destruction. The principle of midah k'nik and midah is operative, measure for measure, and that really is an approach that you can find throughout the book of Eicha, Rabbah. The other approach, though, kind of gives a certain space where tochecha is not in the forefront, where tochecha rebuke is not coming right at you. And that is the sense that Eicha is lashon kina, according to that approach. It's lament for lament's sake. It's a space in that word, it's a space where one can simply kind of not answer the question, not say, how did it happen, and analyze the tragedy. Kind of, this is a common phenomenon. Whenever something terrible happens in the news, and let's say there's a crash or something of that sort, you'll have, paper, you'll have pictures in the New York Times as to how precisely the thing occurred, where the wind was blowing, and why the plane fell, which is obviously important for the airline industry, but I don't know how, it's, how, how important it is for ourselves. There's a sense that when something terrible happens, it shouldn't be about how did it happen, what are the mechanics of how it happened, which sin created you know, this destruction, but no, a space where one can lament, where one can have a true echa. And I think in a sense that the space that's provided in kind of, let's say, these 11 tales to work through some of the tragedy and to picture it in other ways is another way of having space, is another thing that's accomplished through denial. The denial of the fact that the Athenians or the Westerners really did beat us, and they beat us good, is that in fact, no, we're really better than them. They may even picture us in, in art with our, with, a, with, a, you know, with our eyes bound, right? And we are, you know, Judea cap- Captiva, we're just nothing. In fact, we have this space and we have this place, many pages in Echarabah, where we can imagine another reality, right? What we're going to do next week, though, is talk about that other kind of space, the other kind of space of the Eicha as a lament, not a place where we can say this sin happened it, but actually recognize real value and real power and maybe even real rage in the lament, where first of all we can just be sad ourselves 
and throw up our hands and not ask how did this happen, but just say, alas. But also, ultimately, this space leads to a very surprising, almost controversial way of turning the question of Eicha. In other words, that space of the lament, what it does is it says, not how did we get ourselves into it, but how did God let this happen? How did God allow such a destruction to take place, which is almost the inevitable outgrowth of that sort of space of lament, that kind of space where you're not asking, what did I do, but you're just grieving. So we're going to stop there. You know, we, we can talk about it after, but I uh, hope to see you next week. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you.